appropriate responses. So when we talk about circumstances or situations happening to us or to other people, we anticipate an appropriate response. For instance, Derek's taking off his coat right now because he's a little hot. It's an appropriate response. It would be an inappropriate response if he came in and was putting on like vortex gloves and earmuffs. Appropriate response. Let me give you some examples. Uh, let's say you receive in the mail this week a letter from your bank and your mortgage escrow is, was a little higher. And so they're sending you a refund of $125. What's the appropriate response? Then you get a check the next week, an unexpected inheritance check from a relative you never knew for $175,000. Same response? There's an appropriate response to one, appropriate response to the other. Let's say your child is in T-ball and gets a base hit. Let's say your child hits the winning home run in the championship tournament. Different responses. Or the doctor says, don't worry about your cold, it will go away. Or the doctor says, the cancer is gone. There's different levels based on, appropriate, uh, on the circumstances that happen, happening to us. You wouldn't expect someone to respond to the $175,000 check the same way they respond to $100. So what, let me ask this question then. When we read Hannah's prayer, when I read Hannah's prayer to us just now, does it seem like an appropriate response or is it like over the top, like, Hannah, you, ha- you had a baby. Uh, lots of people have babies. We know you're thankful that the Lord has answered your prayer. But you're talking about like these violent metaphors. And, and, and verse number three, uh, at verse number two, where, where, where is it? Verse number one, the, the end of verse number one, talks about her mouth boasting over her enemies. Uh, Verse number four talks about warriors' bows being broken. Like, lady, you had a kid. See what I mean? It seems like she's responding in a way that's a little bit out of sync with what God actually did. In verse number 10, she says, He will give strength to His king. There there is no king. Why, Why is she saying this? There is no king right now. Hannah's prayer is the result of the Holy Spirit divinely using her tongue and even even in a prophetic way unknown to Hannah, she is praying or singing. And no doubt, this is a wonderful work of God in answering her prayer. She was a barren woman who was being picked on by the other wife, Penina. She prays in her distress that God would give her a son. God does, but this prayer seems like an over-the-top response. For instance... Here's one more appropriate response uh, pairing. Derek read for us out of Exodus 15 this morning the song of Miriam after God delivered millions of Hebrews from Pharaoh's army by splitting the Red Sea, letting them pass through, and then destroying the greatest nation on the earth by having that water then cover them up. Miriam had a baby. Or excuse me, Hannah had a baby. It doesn't, it doesn't appear that this song, which sounds a lot like Miriam's song in Exodus 15, you can understand why she would be going crazy with her tambourines dancing all over the place. The horse and rider has been thrown in the sea. But why is Hannah doing very similar things? She had a baby. 
God destroys the greatest nation on earth with a powerful miracle that has never been seen in the history of the world, either before or since. Hannah has a child. Here's the conclusion I want you to reach. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Everybody understand what I'm saying? So here's the conclusion we should reach in that. Is that there's something bigger going on than Hannah just having a baby. God is doing something much bigger than just granting this woman's prayer. So we ask ourselves, what is that? What is God doing? I think in a way we could say it this way, that Hannah's suffering is symbolic of Israel's suffering, and Hannah's salvation is symbolic of Israel's salvation. God's goodness to Hannah is representative of his goodness to all of Israel. And ultimately, in Hannah's prayer, it's representative of how God is good to all people. Here's how I look at the passage, okay? It starts in verses 1 through 3, and Hannah is talking about herself. She's talking about her personal experiences. We're going to walk through the passage very carefully together. And so then it kind of funnels out. So Hannah is basically saying, God has been, God has been good to me, okay? That's very general. It's going to be deeper than that. But God has been good to me. And then it expands in verses 4 to 8, kind of like a funnel going out. Hey, hey, God has been good, good to, to everyone. God has been good to me personally. Now she's, going, she's expanding that to, to more generally, God is good to everyone. And then the last two verses, verses 9 and 10, she expands it even further and says, God is good to everybody universally and eternally because that is who God is. So what Hannah is saying is my little experience here, and she, I don't even think she realizes what she's saying in, in, in part of this. She talks about a king. There is no king. There's no thought of a king. Why does she mention that? I think the Holy Spirit is prophetically speaking through her. She talks about her experience with God. Hey, this is, God's just good to me because God's good to everybody. And ultimately, God is going to show his goodness to all people in all ways. That's how it goes. So God is answering Hannah's prayer by giving her a son. At the same time, he is delivering Israel by reversing the wicked priesthood that I'll introduce you to next week. Remember, all these people are doing what's right in their own eyes, so God has to raise up somebody to deliver his people, and he's ultimately preparing them for a king, capital K king, who is who? Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, who will come through that line that Samuel eventually will point out. Hannah's song really prepares us for Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. Here's the outline that we're going to go through. Verses 1 to 3 what God did. Verses 4 to 8, what God does. Verses 9 through 10, what God will do. Verses 1 to 3, what God did. Verse 4 to 8, what God does. Verse 9 to 10, what God will do. So about 6 o'clock last night, I write the last sentence on page number 9 of these notes, put a period. I said to Leah, I'm going for a walk. Um, and I, I put on a sermon uh, by Alistair Begg on this same chapter. My sermon's already done, I promise you. And he starts the sermon by saying, here's how we're going to divide this sermon. Verses 1 to 3 is what God did. He said exactly what I just told you. I thought, oh, this is horrible. But it actually comforts me because I think it helps me understand we're getting it right. This is, this is the way other men have seen it too. What God did for Hannah, what God is doing for all people, and then ultimately what God will do. See, it's bigger than a woman having a baby. There's so much more for us to examine. So let's start. It's going to be real top-heavy on the first part. 
what God did, and it'll shrink as we go uh, to the end. So we're looking again at verses 1 to 3. Let's go ahead and read it again. Best thing we can do. And you should keep your eyes focused on the scripture as we walk through this together. Hannah prayed and said, here's her response. She's, now, this, it's an amazing response in, because she's leaving her son. We just left ours. My, my, throat, my throat has a lump in it right now. Um, Hannah's leaving her son for good at the temple, and her response is to sing and worship and pray and thank the Lord for this. Here's what she says. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not talk so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. So here's a few things we want to see. We want to see her joy, her dependence, her admonition, her confidence, these types of things. So again, this is, the, this is if I go back to the funnel, when I draw it out on paper, it's easier maybe. I go back to the funnel, it, it's Hannah first. Because all of the, the pronouns here in verses 1 and 2, and you should be looking at it, especially verse 1, my, my, my. Again, she's talking about what God has done for her. It's very personal. She's, she's detailing and thanking God for His dealings with her and the joy that, that she has received. Exalts, exalted, I rejoice. She talks about a few different things. Now this is a great difference that God has made in her life because in chapter 1, she's a crybaby. She's blubbering. She's in vexation and distress. She's worked up about the, the uh, barrenness of her womb. And even to the point where Eli thinks she's a drunken woman because she's just mouthing the words. She can hardly even speak, maybe. And now she's completely changed because of what God has done for her. She starts by talking about her heart rejoicing in the Lord. All of us understand what we say when we mean our heart. We're just talking about the, the wholeness of her person. Everything about her is finding joy in God. She says her horn is lifted high. Some of you may have a translation that says her strength. As you look in your Bible, maybe you see that word, strength. I, I wish you wouldn't because horn is better. Um, Horn is symbolic of an animal's glory and strength. When, when hunters go out, they don't look for a massive two-point buck. Right? They look for the one with the huge rack. That, that is the glory of that beast. Um, we're talking about in kids. Maybe Tiana and Eden can help us with this. They were in teens, but talking about the existence of unicorns. They don't ex I don't believe that, but they're horn, right? This, this fictional creature even, the horn is the magnificent part of this beast. Or a rhinoceros, and these poachers go out and they chop that off because that is the glory. But the strength and power is not the only thing that is being discussed here. It's also talking about how animals will like uh, frolic and take victory and they'll lift up their heads high in, in victory and in strength. And that's what Hannah is saying here. My strength has been lifted up. Because in chapter 1, Hannah's this, right? Distressed, vexated. Now she's strong. Why? Why? God has dealt kindly with her. She says her mouth boasts. 
This is also a picture from animals in nature because it's, it's demonstrative of an animal that has killed another beast and is getting set to devour its prey. <laughs> this is why I'm saying this is more than just Hannah having a baby. Is Hannah really saying, like, is she really viewing Penina as a destroyed animal and she is towering over it ready to eat it? That's, that's the imagery she's giving. Do you see that? You see why I think it's, 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 over the, it's appropriate response? Like, Penina, you were teasing me at the uh, festival a few years ago. Now I'm going to treat you like a wounded beast and lift, you know, it's just, it's over the top because she's expressing something far greater, God's ultimate deliverance, which we're going to get to here in a minute. These strong metaphors are used because she's delighting in God's salvation. Like one writer said, in these few verses, Hannah sounds more like a victorious general than a nursing mother. She used the language of her people in her prayer and then in her praise. Let's think back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. When she prayed for this child, remember she was barren and she prayed for this child, she reflected on uh, Moses and God at the burning bush. Remember she prayed, and let's, let's even look at it. In chapter 1, she prays at verse number 11, if you look at it there with me. In verse number 10, it says she's deeply distressed, right? No raised horn, no victory, no deliverance. She prays and she's weeping bitterly and she makes this vow and here's the language that she uses from Exodus 3. She says, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. Remember at the burning bush, God is calling Moses and he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. Hannah's remembering that. And she's saying, God, you worked in the life of our people. Will you work in my life? Now you go ahead to, okay, she got her deliverance. And now she goes right back again to Exodus chapter 15 this time. Where, where Derek read, who is a God like you? This is Miriam after the Red Sea. Am I losing you? Okay. Sometimes i got to ask that. It feels like I am. But Miriam in the Red, at the Red Sea in Exodus 15. Who is a God like you? wondrous in holiness, glorious God. Because of that deliverance, Hannah goes back and does this, the same kind of thing. There, Verse number two, there is none holy like the Lord. There is no rock like you. She is, she is drawing upon God's deliverance to His people in Exodus and saying, God has delivered me like that. And now she's going to go on and realize that God is going to continue to deliver Israel and will through His Christ Deliver all people. The end of verse number one. Her joy comes from God's salvation. Being saved is more than a trite Christian phrase. A lot of people use it as religious speech. Are you born again? Are you saved? People use that in just as jargon. But being saved is the greatest need of every human being. So, Wednesday night, in the kids, uh, we just have wonderful children down there. Just wonderful. My heart just desires them to know Christ so uh, greatly. And uh, 
one girl has come every week and just very excited and we just, we love her so much and she brought somebody else. And uh, I was getting like stuff ready. I'd just gotten off the bus and I was getting the projector ready and some of the papers ready and she just shouts at me, hey pastor, do you, do you got to know about God to get baptized? Like, okay. And uh, I said, well, what? That's a, why are you asking that? Um, that's a good question. What do you got to know about God to get baptized? I said, well, yeah. You got to be saved, don't you? That's right. The friend that she had brought said, what does it mean to be saved? Felt like I was in Philippi with the jailer coming out. And I said, that is a great question. And uh, the other girl said, yeah, I did that upstairs at Bible school a couple years ago with Mrs. Burak. I said, well, then you should know what to say to her. And she looks and she goes, uh, uh. And I said, well, don't worry, because our story that night was on the death and resurrection of Christ. I said, don't worry, the story tonight is about that. And she said, oh, he'll tell you during the story what it means to be saved. Those type of conversations and questions are questions that everybody should be asking. And these kids are unafraid to ask them because they don't, they're not so concerned about what others are thinking about them. They're just genuinely curious. And I pray and hope that through our continued ministry and love of these children that some kids will come to me and say, but maybe the question that was asked by that child, you've never asked yourself. Or you think you are because you've always just kind of existed in this Christian blob, this atmosphere where you know the language and the talk and you can sing the words, you know the hymns, you carry the Bible, but, but this is all just kind of a routine and, and you're truly not saved. I would encourage you like that child. What does it mean to be saved? It means to confess your sins to God. And recognize you have no way to solve that sin problem. And you are destined for separation from Him forever upon your death. But because Christ has paid the penalty on the cross for your sins, all you have to do is call upon Him, repent of your sins, and trust Christ. And the Bible says you will be saved. I think back to that Philippian jailer who asked the same question this little girl asked. What uh, must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's your greatest need today. I'm concerned that we might, as a Grace Baptist family, get to heaven one day and look around and realize there's half a dozen of us not there because there were people playing or pretending. Please consider that this morning. Would you be saved? A lot of us might have this response to Hannah's prayer, and I want to speak about this for just a second, okay? Hannah is like over-the-top joyful, and again, I think she's doing that in a Holy Spirit, divinely inspired way, as I'll explain again in just a second, but she's over-the-top excited. Why? Why is she so happy? Somebody just say it. Why is she so happy? Because she got her baby. She got her baby. And some people might say, well, yeah, that's, it's easy to respond like this when God gives you what you ask for. But what about when he doesn't? What about the women who pray 
for years and God never gives them a child? What about the people who pray for their spouses or their loved ones? Please save them. And he doesn't. What about those who struggle with health and God sees fit not to answer those prayers? In recent, we, we, just, we had a good conversation last night. I wasn't going to say this, but uh, in recent days, there's been two very, um, very uh, guys who have basically given themselves to ministry all their lives. An evangelist by the name of Tom Farrell and then Patch the Pirate. Some of you know who Patch the Pirate is. And, and Tom Farrell recently died. He got a brain tumor. He's 69 years old. He went to heaven. And Ron Hamilton is struggling with dementia. Lee and I had an interesting conversation about that. Like, don't you think these guys who've devoted their life to God their whole life deserve, like, God to kind of take care of them? And the, well, it, it just seems unfair. How do people like that who don't have their prayers answered and lose their loved ones react when they see Hannah's prayer? Those who become disappointed or angry with God like that, you don't get what you, what you want are perhaps responding that way because you're only interested in God for the things that He does for you rather than who He is as God. And when God refuses to give you what you want, you forget His character and look only at His decisions and then place, place that burden on Him like He's been unkind to you even though He's been kind to everybody else. Hannah, I think, would have responded this way anyway because we look at verse 2 and we see where her trust is. Our trust, let me say it, this is kind of a key point, but your trust and your confidence and your joy and your delight and your dependence on God must come from His character, not His gifts. It must come from His character, not His gifts. Because if you rely on His gifts... Some of you may be destined for trial and tribulation and difficulty and struggle and death. If you rely on God for His gifts, you may be disappointed, angry with God. You must be dependent on His character. And this is what Hannah says in verse 2. He's looking at it. Here's what she says. There is none, she almost says it three different times, none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you There is no rock like our God. God cannot be set up in our life alongside other options that we look at as the focus for our hope and our confidence. Well, we have God, and then we have therapy, and then we have friendships, and then we have success, achievement, career, family, relationship, marriage, love, whatever it might be. And, and God is just a part of that, almost like a menu to choose from. God cannot and will not have any rivals in our life for our confidence and our delight. If God is not our highest joy and greatest confidence, then we will respond in a negative way when He doesn't do what we want. Hannah's focus here is on two things, his holiness and his dependability. Or if you want to say it this way, his perfection and his protection. His perfection and his protection. There is none holy like God. He is completely unique and separate. Now, holiness doesn't always mean his, his uh, moral perfection, although that is 
sometimes in view, but rather it's his uniqueness. And she kind of says it that way twice. There is none like you. There is none beside you. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. It says, to whom will you liken me, says God. You're going to make an idol? You're going to cut down a log? And maybe the wind will blow it over and you'll have to put, pick it back up? Or you'll cut part of it up for your fire and you'll worship the other half of it? And if you're wealthy, you can build something out of silver and set it in your lawn and bow down to it? Let that be your idol. God's hand is saying there's no one like God. There's no one holy like Him. There is no rock like our God. There is no one to depend on to provide the security and the stability that we are looking for and needing. And we sang a bunch of those songs today. Now Hannah expresses her joy and her confidence in this God alone and in His character. And then she gives an admonition to people. She gives an admonition in verse number 3. Don't be proud, don't be arrogant. That's basically what verse number 3 says. Stop talking proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. And the admonition that she gives is based on God's character. So real quick, the admonition is don't be boastful, self-sufficient, arrogant, and proud. Why? Because this is based on God's character. So because I feel like people are a little fuzzy in here right now, let's look in our Bibles. What characteristic of God is Hannah basing that on? She's basically warning, giving this warning, don't be proud, don't be boastful, because God is what? Anybody can say it. No, verse 3. For God is a God that what? Knows. He is a God of knowledge. And by Him all actions are weighed. I asked myself this question on Monday. I, got, I have a yellow sheet. I take some early notes as I read through the passage before I look at anything. And I thought in verse number 3, I, I wrote this question down. Who is Hannah warning? Right? Who is Hannah warning? Who is she saying, don't be proud? Like in our minds, we immediately think, well, she's telling the other wife. She's telling Penina, <laughs> you can stop being proud because I got my baby now. That's not what she's saying. In fact, the word your in verse number three, do not let arrogance come from your mouth, is plural. The Hebrew verbs, do not talk, do not be arrogant, those are plural. So it is written, it is being said with Penina in mind perhaps, but it's being, the warning is to all who are like her, all who are proud and boastful, all who look to themselves and to their successes as a reason to speak up about themselves, Hannah says, don't do that. God knows all things. Everything we do and say is weighed by the God who knows our abilities and our achievements and our successes. And all those things are what leads to self-confidence. The things we can do, the things we can achieve is what kind of gives us this self-sufficiency or reason to boast. And Hannah is expressing that that must stop. Now, let's go to the second section. That's what God has done for Hannah. Now, what is God doing for everybody else? God's action in the case of Hannah and Penina was to lift up the humble one and to bring low the proud, because this is how God acts. So, in verses 4 to 8, which we can go through pretty quickly, God is a God who reverses our way of thinking. He reverses things, okay? 
And, and here's just some examples, okay? You have, and, and we'll go through the scripture in a minute, but you have Penina, who has all the babies, and Hannah, who has none, and now they've been reversed. You have Eli, who is the priest, the wicked priest, and his sons are wicked, and, and he, now we have, we're going to have Samuel, and Samuel is going to take that position away. God is going to reverse it. Even though Eli is the one with the pedigree and the success and the achievements, God doesn't care about that. And in a great way, in about 15 chapters, we're going to be introduced to a little kid who takes five stones and knocks out the Philistine giant, and God reverses that. Okay, That's just what God does. This is... Think about even our, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the powerful and those who achieve and who are successful. He reverses that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. God is in the habit of making these reverses and, and working in a way on behalf of people who are humble and, and dependent on Him, not themselves. So look at some of the examples he, she gives us in her prayer, starting in verse number 4. Again, she's moving out from her personal experience in a way to the way God works with all people. And 1 Peter 5 tells us this, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So verse number 4, it talks about the uh, bows or the weapons of the mighty warriors being broken. And again, we're going to see that in 1 Samuel chapter 18, 19 when David kills Goliath. But those who are weak or those who are feeble will have strength given to them. There's reversal. Those who are full, verse number 5, have hired themselves out for bread. <laughs> but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The one who is barren has borne seven children. She may or may not be talking about herself because she has six children. I think she's just talking about the idea of someone who is barren having many children and the one who is many being forlorn. Now we get real serious. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Here's, here's what verses 4-8 to eight are telling us. That the Lord is the one who brings up and He does this on the basis of those who are broken and barren and bankrupt and burdened who cry out to Him, while others who are self-sufficient or dependent on other things, God will leave them behind. For those who are humble and trust God, they will find Him to be a good and kind God. Here's an important thing to think about in verses 4 to 8, an important encouragement for everybody today, okay? Now, Hannah is saying that God worked in a wonderful way with her, lifting up the poor. Uh, uh, one who is in, what a, what a depiction of that, laying in a garbage dump, an ash heap, and God raising that person up. Hannah is saying, God does that with me, or did that with me, rather, and God will ultimately do that with everybody because this is his tendencies. This is what he does. And this is how he acts with all people. So don't be surprised when he does it with you. So 
I have like six or seven books on 1 Samuel that I consult after I take some notes, and three of them mention this same little anecdote in it, so I thought I would mention it. John Calvin in the 1500s, when his wife died, wrote to a friend of his, and of course now you can imagine a guy who's in an ash heap, just discouraged and down. He writes this to his friend after he lost his wife. He says, May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction which would certainly have overcome me had not He who raises up the prostrate strengthens the weak and refreshes the weary stretched forth His hand to me. What Calvin is saying is, I stand in a long line of people who have found myself discouraged and down and needy. And when I called out to God in humility and dependence, God lifted me up. Because that is what God does. And what God has always done for His people who are humble and dependent. He turns away the self-sufficient. You understand that? Well, He hasn't done that for me. Well, maybe that's because you haven't in humility expressed a desire to depend upon Him. Hannah was weak and trusted God. Calvin was weak and trusted God. This is what God does. He brings, he raises up those who trust Him and brings low those who don't. And now we race to the end and we're almost done. He will ultimately do this with everybody. He will ultimately do this with everybody. Look at verse 9 and 10. Finish this here. This is, this is what He will do. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. as we race towards the end of our own lives, nobody in the world is asking the most important questions. We live in a world now, someone talked to me about this this week, we live in a world now that is dominated by safetyism or self-preservation. Uh, listen, I mean, we as people are important. And we need to prolong our lives and take care of ourselves. And we're so concerned about, again, I like that word, safetyism or protection. Now some of these, some of these things, these advancements in, in, in society are helpful, right? I mean, I never wore a bike helmet as a kid. I never wore a seatbelt. Uh, most of you probably didn't. Uh, they, we go to this Tigers game on, on the, this week, and now they've got the netting all up so nobody gets hit with a ball. And of course, what we're dealing with with COVID, right, we've got to, everybody is worried about safetyism. And everybody is worried about protection in this life, and no one's thinking about it in the next. Who cares if you live to be 98, 99 years old? 
Right? Who cares if you're on your way to hell? Like, oh, I've got to prolong my life as long as I can and ignore God along the way and just hope at the end it works out. That's not the way it works out. And even in Hannah's prayer, she gives us a promise and a warning. And here's the question she asks, and I hope this helps you. She, she, she actually answers questions. Here's the question she answers. She answers the question, who are the group of people that God is going to deliver, and who are the group of people that God is going to destroy? Okay? God is going to deliver some people, and he's going to destroy some people. And this is just the incongruity of our nation and our world that we've got to protect ourselves in this life and just hope for the best in the next? That makes no sense to me. So let's ask ourselves these questions. Who does God deliver? And who does God destroy? Now in your groups, work on that for a minute. If this was Sunday night, I'd say that. But let's all do it together. Look at our Bibles, okay? Verse 9 tells us who he will deliver. And it is those, in, it's real, it, the rest of it is talking about the destruction. It's early in verse 9. He will guard the feet of the faithful. The faithful. Not the rich, not the successful, not the good looking, which is good for most of us in here because none of us are any of those things. But those who depend on those things are not who he will guard. He will guard those who are faithful, those who have entrusted themselves to him, been faithful to him. I've tried to say this in many different ways and at many different points in the ministry as possible because I think Christianity in this century and late last century was all about making a decision. Pray this prayer. Pray this prayer. You know, walk this aisle. Being a Christian is not making a decision. It's becoming a disciple, a follower of Christ, a faithful follower of Christ. If someone walked in here today and had wanted nothing to do with the church and announced to us, but I prayed the prayer, it would be wrong of us to pat that person on the back and say, well, I guess you're okay. He, he guards the faithful, the faithful, those who entrust their lives to him. He brings victory not to the strong, but to the faithful. Now, who does he destroy? He delivers the faithful. Before we move on to who he destroys, I hope you're in that group. I'm telling you. That sounded like Tony. That's what you say. I'm telling you. There's this group. I just am concerned. I'm so concerned that there are people in this church and others, but I'm focused on this one, that have heard the gospel hundreds of times and think they're in that group. And they're not. Please examine. I just pause for just a second to ask you to examine yourself. Make sure that you're in that group. How terrible it would be to get to heaven and for us to look, hey, where's so-and-so? Haven't seen him. Oh, just be heartbreaking. Especially since we had the opportunity to hear the gospel. If you want to be delivered, you must be in that group of the faithful. But, now he takes off on the wicked because those are the people who are destroyed. Here's the warning. This is the other group of people. The wicked will be cut off in darkness. It is not by might a man shall prevail. God is not impressed with your bank account. God is not impressed with your athletic achievements. God doesn't care you won the gold medal. God doesn't care you're the student council president. God doesn't care about any of that stuff. He cares about our lives, but he's not impressed by it, I should say. That's not what grants to us his favor. 
The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. But my God is a God of love. The Scripture tells us a different story here. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, give strength to His King, and exalt the horn of His anointed. Now how is God going to do this delivering and destroying? He's going to do it as He gives strength to His King. Again, there is no king, so who is Hannah talking about? The Hebrew word for king there is the word Messiah. I don't think Hannah knew it, but Hannah is talking about the coming Christ. Christ divides all men. Even as, uh, in Wednesday night, one of the slides for the kids was Jesus on the cross with the thief on one side, thief on the other. He divided even on that day. Even on the cross of Calvary, mankind was divided. You have the one who would receive and you would have the one who would reject. And Christ divides all people. He is the one who will judge the quick and the dead at His appearing. And that is why Paul announces to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, you got to preach the Word and exhort and rebuke because there is coming a day when His King will be given strength and He will come and judge the earth and the faithful will be guarded and delivered and the wicked will be destroyed. See what Hannah is saying? It's much more than she got a baby. God is upending the whole priesthood of Israel ultimately to prepare the way for His own chosen Son to come and deliver. One final thought. I've really encouraged unbelievers to trust Christ, so let me give one thought to a believer in here today. Hannah rejoices in God's salvation. I like one of the words I found in the... uh, reading was there are micro there god does these micro salvation works and macro salvation works okay uh hannah's uh bearing of samuel would be a micro salvation work right it's the macro salvation work is his deliverance from sin and the the provision of christ as savior and the granting of entrance into heaven That's the the macro salvation. But God delivers us in tiny ways all throughout our lives. You ever been driving on the road and a deer jumps in front of you and it's like, oh, shoo. God delivered you. That was a micro deliverance. Here's what someone said. And let let this be an encouragement to you who are Christians. Every one of God's micro deliverances should remind you and point you to his macro deliverance. Say, God, thank you for delivering him in this way. And I know that one day you are going to deliver me in this great and glorious way when I'm going to walk into the presence of God, not because of my might or strength or achievement, but because of Christ's work on the cross. So good. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for Hannah's encouragement The divinely inspired word always meets our needs. I'll just ask you to use the preaching of your word today in whatever way you can. Please save 
souls that need saving. Please encourage the hearts of those who maybe have not had their prayers answered. Help all of us to see all the wonderful little deliverances that you bring us out of, which ultimately point to the salvation you offer and have provided for us in Christ. There is no one like you. There is no rock like our God. Help us to live faithfully unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.